listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. All right, I want to jump in today because we have seven things to cover. Um, And if you don't mind, take a minute to share this broadcast today because uh, this is important information. People, one of the things that annoys me is hearing some of these terms people are using like neo-Pentecostal and pseudo-Pentecostal. I don't even know why you would (laughs) make some kind of distinction. Now, one of the things I will deal with is um, as we go through these, I understand that there are certain Pentecostal denominations that um, hold a couple of beliefs that are uh, very narrow in the Pentecostal domain. We'll talk about it today. Um, it's not a, a widely held because we ne- we don't necessarily believe it's biblical, um, but we'll talk about it. So maybe that's the reason people are using some of these terms like neo-Pentecostal or pseudo-Pentecostal. But what does it mean truly to be a Pentecostal believer? What does it mean to be a Pentecostal believer? I'm going to go through seven beliefs that you must hold as a Pentecostal believer. And uh, these are the majority of Orthodox Christian beliefs. But you'd be you'd literally be surprised how many uh, Christians today don't hold some of these beliefs. I mean, in all honesty, it blows my mind. So I want you to write them down. It's always good to have some sort of a reference book, a textbook. And um, let me just name a few if you don't have one. Let me just name a few that'll help you with with Pentecostal beliefs at the outset. Um, There's some really good books that are kind of all-inclusive that have been written. For example, um, well, here's one right here that's been a staple for many years. Uh, You want to do a close shot on that, Tiff? That's Bible Doctrines by P.C. Nelson. That's just a small little reference book. But this is, this guy could read 22 languages. Uh, He had a 30,000 book library personally. Um, He did his devotions in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. This guy was a genius and he was Pentecostal. P.C. Nelson, uh, this is kind of an old standard. It's a great book to get. Uh, that's Bible doctrines. Um, there's, there's others, there's others that have been written. Uh, you can get a textbook if you want. Um, but there's another one written by a Pentecostal whose name was Meyer Perlman, M Y E R Perlman, just like it sounds Meyer Perlman. And it was called knowing the doctrines of the Bible knowing the doctrines of the Bible. That one's a little bit longer, probably breaks it down more. Um, But like, for example, with Miracle Word University, we use a couple of textbooks. One is Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. That's a textbook. I had it in Bible school. The other one is called Renewal Theology. So Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. The other one is Renewal Theology. Both are great books. It's good to have a reference book so that you can always brush up on why you believe uh, what you believe. Yes, uh, Caitlin, my uncle did not write that book. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is written by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Great book. We offer it as part of our elite study collection. Um, But Knowing the Doctrines of the Bible is uh, written by Meyer Perlman. Another great book. Is it M-E-Y-E-R? I don't know. I can't, or if it's just M-Y-E-R. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, all those are great books. So if you need a reference book to put in your library, all of those are great. Um, but they'll help you to understand and even give you the scripture references for why we believe what we believe. Today, I'm going to give you seven of those. I want you to write them down. I want you to write the scripture references down because... One of the things that I see in our generation more than ever is that people truly don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't know. They couldn't explain to you. They couldn't even take you into the Bible and explain to you why they believe what they, that's Duffield and Van Cleve for the uh, foundations. Um, so I'm going to give them to you today and kind of help you 
uh, show you. And uh, Tiffany's putting those books in the comments for you guys if you want to go back and reference it later. But let's break these down. And all of them are important. Good morning, Lilia. And good morning, Mrs. Petty. I know you probably don't like to hear that. It's probably like not the way to probably nobody. Nobody likes to hear Mrs. Petty or Mrs. or Mr. Whoever makes you feel like your mom or your dad. And she's young. Listen, Lilia's mom is vibrant and young. I'm saying it publicly on the broadcast. She's not matronly in any way. All right. I've said too much. Let's go forward. Um, (laughs) Lily is probably laughing at this point. Uh, Morning, Ted. Uh, So we're going to give you seven things, seven, (laughs) seven beliefs that you must hold. There's my friend, Pastor Jordan work. Uh, And let's start with this one because it is foundational. You've got to, got to believe this one. Are you ready? Number one, the first thing that Pentecostal Christians believe and hopefully all Christians believe, but they don't, is that the scriptures are divinely inspired. That's number one. The scriptures are divinely inspired. Morning, Zach. The scriptures are divinely inspired. This number one, it's so important that you believe that. Like, I can't even begin to tell you how important it is to believe that. (laughs) You've got to believe this, that the scriptures are divinely inspired. Well, you ask the question, why do we believe that? How come we don't just believe it's another religious book written by men just like any other religious book? Why don't we believe it's just like the Quran or any other book that a a religion holds dear to their heart? Why isn't the Bible like the uh, Book of Mormon? Jolson, what's up? Good to see you from Cuiaba, Brazil. Love you. Moabes, that was my interpreter in Brazil. Um, why, Why don't we believe that the Bible is like the Book of Mormon? Why don't we believe it's like the Quran or any other uh, book that a religion holds dear to their heart? The Bible stands alone. And there's a several reasons. Now, number one, uh, it claims to be inspired by God. Let me give you that first. That's found in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let me read them to you. This is the verse, these are the two verses that uh, I would pair with this. I could also give you another section, which I will in a moment. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What does the Bible say? All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the Bible itself claims to be inspired by God. And in fact, an interesting, uh, interesting fact here, this Greek word used in the 16th verse is only used one time in the entire Greek New Testament, one time. And it's for this purpose, describing the inspiration of the word of God. And I like the ESV. That's what I'm using here. The English standard version version, because while other translations in English might say all scripture is inspired by God, the ESV goes back to the Greek and really renders in English the exact thing that the Greek manuscript says here in second Timothy three, you know what it says? It says breathed out by God. That is what the Greek manuscript actually says. And I've talked about this in broadcasts. It's the Greek word Theonustos, Theonustos. It is a word that is made up of two words. Theos is the word for God in Greek, Theos. And uh, pneuma or, which here we have neustos, uh, those words squish together, Theos and pneuma or neustos here, you get Theonustos. It means, the word neustos means breath or wind, breath or wind. So most literally it means God breathed. That's what that word means in the Greek, God breathed. And it says all scripture is theonustos, God breathed. 
So all scripture came out of the mouth of God. He breathed it out. And that's what the scripture says here in the ESV. All scripture is breathed out by God. Powerful. So the Bible claims to be uh, inspired by God. Well, secondly, what's another passage we could look to? Another passage we could look to is found in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a very powerful passage as well, because not only does Paul claim this as he's inspired, Peter claims it as well. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Listen, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is a powerful thought. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? So Peter is here saying that nobody just decided what the scriptures would be. Nobody just sat down and said, you know what? I think I'm going to write a book of the Bible today. Nobody did that. The Bible says that all scripture not only was breathed out by God, but nothing was ever produced by the will of man and that all men spoke from God and the Holy Spirit carried them along. So here's two pillars. These, these two passages are pillars of biblical inspiration. Number one, God breathed it all out. And number two, no man decided what would be in scripture. God did as he carried the men along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke. And so, I mean, the inspiration of scripture is one of the biggest miracles of all time. And we have the word of God preserved for us. We do. We have the word of God preserved through all these thousands of years for us the Old Testament for many more thousands of years and the New Testament for about 2000 years. It's amazing. I mean, this is one of my favorite subjects on the earth. So I could go on at length about uh, biblical um, preservation and inspiration. I love this subject, but just think about the fact that we have more evidence in history of these manuscripts right here, even of just the New Testament than any other work of antiquity, any other. I mean, you can go back through the writings of ancient people and we've got more manuscript copies that have been discovered in archeology span for the New Testament than any other work that's referenced even in universities. Homer's Odyssey, anything. I mean, anything. Over 6,000 manuscripts and fragments exist for the Greek New Testament. That's just in the original language of Greek. Then we have many more in Coptic. We have many more in Aramaic, Syriac. I mean, there's Latin. I mean, we could go through, but just for the 6,000 Greek, more than any other, it's a miracle. God has truly preserved his word for his people. And if you're Pentecostal, you better believe that the scriptures are inspired by God. Here's the problem, see, if you don't believe that the scriptures are inspired by God, and if you somehow think that the Bible is just some book that's written by men, you fall into a problem. And the problem is, well, if it's just written by men, then it's not really an objective standard. It's all it really is, is good suggestions, right? Because if a man wrote this and men are fallible, men make mistakes, then if this is not a God document, which I believe that it obviously is, it claims to be, and I haven't even talked about the third level yet, but it claims to be a God document. If it's, if it's a God document, then it is my objective standard for living. It sets the bar for living. That there is no, uh, disagreement. There is no argument on what's right and what's wrong, what's holy and what's sinful. This God document defines what is good and holy and pure and what is missing the mark. And it's important 
Because in this day and age in which we live, this postmodern society, you better have an objective truth and not a subjective truth. (laughs) Because that's what people say today. Well, that's your truth. That's what you believe, but that's not my truth. No, truth is truth. And this word of God is true. The other thing I won't even take time to get into is fulfilled Bible prophecy. This is so accurate that even secular scholars have referred to fulfilled Bible prophecy as history written ahead of time. (laughs) History written ahead of time. And so let me, let me just tell you the accuracy with which the Bible prophesied the future is staggering, is staggering, especially when you go back and if you were to only study the prophecies about the Messiah, your mind would be blown. It would be blown to see all the things that were prophesied about the Messiah who was to come hundreds of years before Jesus was born, some even longer than that. And Jesus literally fulfilled every single one of those prophecies in his lifetime. I mean, the Bible couldn't be anything else but breathed out by God. It has to be. It has to be. It's the only thing it could be. So that's number one. If you're a Pentecostal, you had better believe that these scriptures are inspired by God and they are your standard. So everything we do is judged by God's word. We don't, we don't ever allow manifestations to go beyond the written word of God. The, the word of God is our standard. It is sufficient. It's our standard. And so we have to understand that. Number two, and this is a big one. Number two, if you're a Pentecostal, you also believe that Jesus is deity. <laughs> Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. Even when he was on the earth, he was God. Now, here's where I told you I would make a little bit of a explanation because one of the things that's kind of been uh, misunderstood, when I say that Jesus is God or that when I say Jesus is deity, I don't, I don't say that in such a way that you, you would think or, or should believe that I don't believe in the Trinity Of course, I believe in the Trinity. Of course, I believe in the three persons that make up the Godhead as the Bible speaks about and is clearly seen in the New Testament. Of course, I believe in the, in the three part Godhead. However, I would never relegate Jesus to less than God. In fact, the Bible plainly and clearly calls him God in multiple places throughout the New Testament. Uh, very clearly, uh, one would be one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible, the gospel of John chapter one, verse one. This is such a powerful verse that at some point I may write a book on just this one verse of scripture. I'm not joking. I have the notes already written out. The Bible says in the beginning was the word that's talking about Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was with God, Jesus, and the word was God. You say, how do you know it's Jesus? Because if you keep reading, the Bible says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's verse 14. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. And so, uh, and it goes on to explain that. And John is laying out his theology on who Jesus is. That's why it's my favorite gospel of the four. Um, Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. One of the things, again, I made uh, a comment on the last point about the Greek. I'll make a point here on the Greek in John 1, 1. Very interesting. Um, When you say a proper noun in the Greek language, it's usually preceded by the word the. So like if we were speaking Greek, Um, you wouldn't say like, this is Ted. You would say, this is the Ted. Or you wouldn't say, uh, for example, here, uh, you would read like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with the God. That's how it reads in the Greek because they always precede a proper noun with the word the. 
However, in this passage, and I love this because the Holy Spirit, eternal intelligence, eternal wisdom. When this word, when this scripture was being penned, that last phrase, and the word was God, it should say in the Greek, and the word was the God, meaning that they would be one and the same person, but it doesn't do that here. You go back to the original and it actually says, and the word was God. The, the, the is removed so that you can understand that the verse is talking about two different individuals. This is a very exciting thing, uh, really to understand. It's like an equation where you see an equal sign in the middle. If, if they both had the word the in front of them, it would be like an equal sign. Jesus is God. But there's not that equal sign because the the is removed in the Greek language. So it's not saying that they're the same person. It's saying that they both hold the same nature. Man, that's powerful. It's not saying they're the same person. It's saying they hold the same nature, which Jesus later described when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Well, is the father the same as the son? No, they're two different individuals. But if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Why? Because my nature is his nature. His nature is my nature. See? Powerful. So that's one verse that describes Jesus as God. Another extremely uh, important verse for you to write down is Titus chapter 2. And um, we'll read verses 11 through 14. Are you ready for this? Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. Listen, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now listen to verse 13. Very important. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of who of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. You see that our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ, our great God and savior. So Titus here, Paul sent this to Titus and he was telling him, Jesus Christ is our great God and savior. Very important verse for the deity of Christ. Very important verse. Um, and, and so you've got to get this down. If you're a Pentecostal, you better believe Jesus is God. Now we're not saying, now there are a sect of Pentecostals that believe that there's only Jesus, that there is no separate individual called the father, that there is no separate Holy spirit, that they're all Jesus. They're sometimes referred to as Jesus only. And, uh, there is a sect of Pentecostalism that that's what they believe. I don't believe that. I do believe in the Trinity. I do believe in the three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we're not getting that confused in when I define what does it mean to be Pentecostal? You, only, you believe in Jesus only. No, I'm not saying that. I believe in the Trinity. We, we preach the Trinity, but we also don't relegate Jesus, especially when he was on the earth as a man, to less than God. He was all God and all man at the same time. In fact, I want you to put that uh, in the comments. When he was on the earth, Jesus was all God and all man at the same time. That's one of those mysteries that people just can't seem to understand. How could he be all God and all man at the same time? Because he had to carry your sins. But in order for someone uh, to be able to do what Jesus did, he had to be divinity. He had to be divinity. Yes, I, uh, Pierre, I, obviously I believe oneness Pentecostals are saved. Yes, I do. Because what, what is the uh, prerequisite for salvation? You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so, of course, I believe they're saved. I don't think that they're unsaved or a cult or anything like that. I'm just saying that we may disagree uh, when it comes to 
uh, defining the Trinity. But of course, I believe they're saved. I have friends and ministry friends that uh, either came out of that movement or are still in that movement. And uh, we agree to disagree. So you have to believe that Jesus is deity. You don't relegate Jesus, especially in his life on the earth, as less than deity because he obviously was not. Number three, third thing we've got to believe is Pentecostals. And this is important because this really does bring a defining factor to whether or not you're Pentecostal. We believe in Holy Ghost baptism as a subsequent experience to salvation. Let me say that again because it sounded like a mouthful. We believe in Holy Ghost baptism as an experience that happens after salvation. One more time, Holy Ghost baptism that happens as an experience after salvation. Now it can happen at the same time you get saved, but you have to be saved first because you can't get filled with the spirit without being saved. And so we believe in Holy Ghost baptism. Got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And so, for example, uh, there are Christians that don't believe that there is a distinction. I want to make this clear so that you understand where we differ. There are Christians that don't believe that there's a distinction between getting saved and being baptized in the Holy Ghost. They think that being saved covers it all. For example, uh, they'll use a verse of scripture like when Jesus was, after he was resurrected and he came back to his disciples, what did he say to them? Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And he breathed upon them. Well, all scholars believe that that was the moment of the disciples salvation. That's the moment they became new creatures in Christ Jesus after the resurrection. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. He breathed upon them and they were saved. They were made new. But here's the question. If that is all that was necessary, okay, why would Jesus then tell those disciples who were saved, fully saved, why would he tell them, go wait in Jerusalem until you're filled with power from on high? If they already had the Holy Ghost because they got saved, why did they need to go wait in the upper room for the day of Pentecost to come? to receive the Holy Ghost. If they just received the Holy Ghost, doesn't make sense, does it? It's because they're two different experiences, getting saved and being baptized in the power of the Holy Ghost. It's, it's not the same thing. So the answer that somebody would give me is, well, the reason he told them that is because the Holy Spirit had not been given yet, had not been sent by God yet that Jesus would ascend into heaven. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will pray to the father. He'll send you another comforter, which is the Holy ghost. And the reason that they needed to wait was because the Holy spirit had not yet been sent. Okay. I'll concede that point. Now we have to ask the question, how come after Pentecost, here's where you really break it down. Why is it that after the day of Pentecost, every person that we have the a story about in the book of Acts that got saved, why was there a subsequent or afterwards experience of those Christians getting baptized in the Holy Ghost? Why did they have to do that? Let me give you an example. Why was it that in Acts chapter eight, after Philip preached in Samaria and the whole city got saved, why did Peter and John have to come from Jerusalem to lay their hands on all those people in Samaria so that they'd be baptized in the Holy Ghost? If they were already saved, why did they need the apostles to come? If it's all the same thing. And apparently something took place in Samaria, according to Acts 8, that didn't just happen inwardly inside those believers, 
something happened outside so that Simon the sorcerer could see these people are all getting filled with the Holy Ghost. Not only did he see it, it made him want to buy the power. So if being filled with the Spirit of God is an inward work, why was Simon the sorcerer able to see an outward evidence of an inward work? Now, the Bible does not describe what happened that was outward. It's my belief, if we compare it to every other experience in Acts, that they started to speak with other tongues. Now, the Bible doesn't say they spoke with other tongues in Acts 8. But if you compare it to every other time people got filled with the Holy Ghost, that's what all the other ones did. Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. And we know it happened to Paul because Paul got filled with the Holy Ghost and he later told the Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So we know that that was the standard, if you will. So something happened. But the question I'm asking is, why did the apostles need to come from Jerusalem if, the, if those in Samaria were already saved? They already had the Holy Ghost in those people's opinion. Same with Acts 10, when Peter's in Cornelius' house. As he is preaching, not only do they get saved, they all get baptized in the Holy Ghost. In Acts 19, Paul is in Turkey or Ephesus, which is now modern day Turkey. And he meets those 12 men. They've only been baptized in John's baptism. So after Paul gives them the revelation of Jesus, guess what happens? They're all baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That means they got saved. But then what does Paul do as soon as they get saved? He lays his hands upon them and they all get baptized in the Holy Ghost and start to speak with other tongues and prophesy. So if if getting saved is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Ghost, then why did they happen separately in the book of Acts? Why did they happen separately? It's because they're not the same thing. They are different experiences, but both expected by Jesus Christ. He wants his people to not only be saved, but to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. And if you're a Pentecostal, you obviously believe in a secondary experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'll move on to number four. And I I mentioned this because of uh, the narrative of the book of Acts. But what we see happening is that when somebody gets filled with the Holy Ghost, the initial sign or evidence that they have been filled with the Holy Ghost is what? That they speak with other tongues. Now, that's not something that people made up. It's something that's in the book of Acts. It was the sign, first of all, uh, when, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, what did he say? What did he say? He said, this is that, that was spoken by the prophet Joel. He said that. And the prophet Joel said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So Peter was saying, this is what Joel was talking about. Here's the moment where God's pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. Jesus prophesied it all the way back in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. This hadn't happened yet when Jesus prophesied this. These signs will accompany those that believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll speak with new tongues. That's Mark 16, 17. They'll speak with new tongues. That was a prophecy. That hadn't happened yet. There was nobody speaking with new tongues in Jesus' day. That was a prophecy. Came to pass on the day of Pentecost. So what's the first thing? They knew they had been filled. Let's go to Acts 2. You got to believe this because the Bible teaches it. I don't know how you would get around it. You say, well, you can't. And and here's, um, by the way, let me give you an answer for people that, that may say this to you. Well, you can't make doctrine out of stories because that's not someone teaching on the Holy Ghost in the Bible. That's just a narrative story of what happened to people. 
You can't build doctrine out of that. Oh, really? You can't build doctrine out of narrative stories from the Bible? Well, if you can't, then there's no way for anybody to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Because there's no one in the New Testament that teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. We only have that knowledge because we read it in the narrative story of the gospels. That's the only way that we have that, that piece of information, that fact that is a crucial fact in the chain of redemption. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, none of us are saved today because that means that he was sinful, not sinless. That's the whole reason that the Holy Spirit had to impregnate Mary versus a man impregnating Mary. Jesus was the seed of God, not the seed of a man. That's how he was sinless. So if you don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin, you're not saved. (laughs) And we don't have anybody that teaches on that didactically in the New Testament, just narrative. So don't tell me that we can't build doctrine off of what we read in the narrative. You absolutely can. You absolutely can, especially when it's later on taught in the New Testament. So here we see in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. Suddenly there came a a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind filled the house where they were sitting, divided tongues of fire sat on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy spirit and began to do what speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. So the way they knew they were filled with the spirit is they spoke with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. That's how they knew. That's how they knew something happened in acts eight. Although it's an argument from silence, we don't see the exact description. That's how the Jews knew in acts 10. The first time Gentiles were ever filled with the Holy Ghost, Acts 10. And you know what the Jews said? They've got the same thing we got. They got the same thing we got. What? They got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And the Jews recognized it. They recognized what was happening. How did they? So what did they recognize? They just got filled with the Holy Ghost. How do we know the 12 men in Ephesus got filled with the Holy Ghost? They began to speak with tongues and prophesy. Throughout the book of Acts, it is the sign. It is the initial sign. It's the initial sign. I, I don't get, I can't get with these guys today that call themselves Pentecostals that argue against tongues being the initial sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's what we see happening in the scripture. It's what we see happening. It's what we see defined and described. You know, people get up and they're like, you know, I, uh, I believe walking in love is the, is the sign you're filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, it is a sign, but it's not the initial sign. Baba doesn't say the Holy Spirit fell upon them, cloven tongues of fire sat on their heads, and they all began to walk in love. It's not what the Bible says. In any of those situations, they all began to walk in peace with one another. It's not what it says. It says they spoke with tongues as Jesus prophesied would happen. And so I thank God for people that are, are Pentecostal, but I don't go around saying, well, the fruit of the spirit is the true proof that you're, okay, we should walk in the fruit of the spirit. No question. And yes, what good does it do if you speak in tongues, but have a nasty spirit? I agree with that uh, thought as well. That yes, you should walk according to the fruit of the spirit. Tongues does not make you spiritual, nor does it make you mature, but it is the initial sign you're filled with the Holy Ghost. It is the initial sign. And it's what we see throughout the scripture. So number four is we believe tongues is the initial evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Ghost. Tongues is the evidence that you've received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Number five, as Pentecostals, we believe in the fivefold ministry gifts. We believe in all five. We don't believe that God did away with apostles and prophets. We don't even, there are some today that believe 
that God did away with the evangelistic office and that it's just really a pastor teacher that's all that's left. And they don't even believe those are two different gifts, but one. Shepherd teachers. It's just one person. They've dumbed the fivefold ministry gifts down to one gift. Shepherd teachers, pastors of churches. It's obviously not the case. Now, there's no more apostles of the Lamb left, the ones that Jesus handpicked and that saw his face. Of course, that's true. There are no more apostles of the Lamb left. But let me, let me just give you a thought for those that are, are watching. Maybe you, for some of you, this, this won't necessarily mean anything, but I'll explain it. People that argue that there are no uh, apostles or prophets today, they will say, well, you have to recognize that one of the things that God set the apostles and prophets in the church to do is to give us the biblical canon, give us the scriptures, that the apostles and the prophets wrote the scriptures. Okay, well, if that's all they did, let's keep something in mind. Half of Jesus' apostles, probably a little bit more than half of Jesus' apostles, didn't write any biblical books, none. So was there office as an apostle wasted on them because they didn't give us any canon of scripture. They didn't write any books. So what do you say for those apostles? We have prophets and prophetesses that did. What about Anna? The Bible says Anna was a prophet in the new Testament. She didn't write any books of the Bible. She gave us no scripture. So was her ministry irrelevant because she didn't provide any scripture? Judas didn't give us any books of the Bible. Neither did Thomas. The gospel of Thomas is not an inspired book of the Bible. So there's, that can't be true. God was not a fool in giving the fivefold ministry gifts as defined in Ephesians chapter four. He gave them as gifts under the church, but let's, let's read why he gave them. This will help you to understand it. Ephesians chapter four. Let's read verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11. And God gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we'll no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, but speaking the truth in love. So I love you, Aaron. So here's the, here's the question. If those passed away, can we truly still be perfected by just one gift? Like some people say, no, we believe as Pentecostals that we still retain all five parts of the ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All of them still function today. All of them. God didn't do away with them. And that wasn't the only function of the fivefold ministry, especially apostles and prophets. And the evangelistic gift is not gone. We still have evangelists. So as a Pentecostal, we still believe in the fivefold ministry gifts. Now, here's a very important one as well, number six. Number six is this. We believe that the supernatural manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit continue on till this day and until Jesus comes. We believe that. We are not, by, for example, the opposite, which is called a cessationist. That's just someone who believes those gifts, number six, ceased, that they stopped, that there are no more healings, miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues. There's no more signs and wonders. There's people that believe there's no more of that, that it stopped when the last apostle died. It stopped. The problem you have with that is that you can't even prove that historically. The problem with that thought is go back and read the early church fathers, go back and read Irenaeus, go back and read Polycarp. 
Go, so go, go back and read these different early church fathers and their writings. You know what you're going to find? At, even after John, the revelator, died, there were still signs, wonders, and miracles. Let me give you number six again. We believe the gifts of the Spirit continue on today. We believe, this is not a repeat, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue on. They didn't stop. The supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit did not stop when John the Revelator died. They believe that when the last apostle died, that these signs, wonders, and miracles ceased. And they use out of context a verse of scripture from 1 Corinthians 13, tongues shall cease. Yeah, in heaven. Not after the last apostle died. And if you want to say it's Paul, you can't even prove that. Because even after Paul died in Rome, Irenaeus was after Paul. Polycarp was after Paul. You can go back and read these early church fathers. And you know what they wrote? They wrote, and we have all their writings. Historically, we have all their writings. They were still seeing miracles. Do you know they were still seeing the dead being raised? They were still seeing demons cast out in the first century church. Still seeing all that. Paul had died. John the Revelator had died. And they were still seeing supernatural things happen. Didn't stop. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until uh, Christ returns. We won't need those things in heaven, but we need them now. We need healing now. We need miracles now. We need tongues now. We need interpretation now. Prophecy, we still need it now. And so it didn't end, it continues. Number six is, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue. We're, we, they would call us continuationists. Continuationists means we believe they continue. We're not cessationists, which means they ceased. They stopped. We're continuationists. They keep, they keep going. We believe in signs, wonders, and miracles. We still lay our hands on the sick and watch them recover. We still cast out devils. I've cast a few out myself. <laughs> I can just tell you, it's still real. When people, uh, Moabas, if, he, if, if he's still watching, when Moabas, when Moabas and I were ministering on the final night of the crusade in Cuiaba, that, that woman got delivered from a demon spirit. She was demon possessed, came to the altar and was manifesting. Moabas and I went down to the ground floor, cast the demon out of her. And then pastor uh, led her to Jesus. She spoke English and she didn't even speak English. The demon spoke out of her. Demons still need to be cast out. Miracles still need to happen. Tongues are still for today. We continue to believe in the power of God. We don't limit God's power. And finally, and this is also important, as Pentecostals, we believe that Jesus is coming. We believe that Jesus is coming. We believe that Jesus is coming. One of the things, and I know there's some deviation now, one of the things that Pentecostals have believed for a long time is that Jesus is coming to rapture his church before the tribulation takes place. Now, I understand that's controversial to some. There are many people that believe that uh, whether they believe in a literal tribulation or not, a literal millennium or not, there are believers who don't believe in any of that. They believe that's figurative speech. They believe that Jesus will only return in his second coming. Pentecostals have believed for a long time that Jesus will rapture his church from the earth, the catching away of the church. He'll catch us away. We believe that Christ will come, rapture his church, and preserve the final generation from the wrath of God, which is tribulation spoken about in the book of Revelation. Many Christians read that literally and believe it literally that God will pour out actual, literal judgments 
on the earth from heaven, the scrolls, the trumpets, the bowls, he'll pour them out on the earth to a wicked people who rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that there are others that don't believe that that's literal. They don't believe in uh, an actual tribulation that lasts seven years. They don't believe in an actual thousand year reign of Christ afterwards. They only believe in the second coming of Christ. I understand that. And there's Pentecostal people that believe that. I get it. But I'm just going to tell you that when you begin to realize the dominion that you have in Christ, if you read the Bible literally where it can be read literally, and if you were to ask yourself the question, even in type and shadow, did Jesus spare Noah, or excuse me, did God spare Noah and his family from the wrath from heaven because they were righteous? Yes, he absolutely did. Because according to the scripture, Noah and his family were the only remaining righteous people on the earth. And God was going to send judgment, didn't he? But did he judge Noah and his family along with the rest of the earth? Or did he preserve them? He preserved them. He preserved them. They were all safely on the ark, which is a type of Christ in types and shadow, before the rain even began. And he preserved them. When God was ready to destroy wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, but there were still righteous people living in there. Who? Lot and his family. Did God just start destroying the city while Lot was still there with his family? Or did God take, send two angels to grab hold of Lot and his family and rush them out of the city? The words of the Bible. To rush them out when they delayed, when they hesitated, rush them out. Why did he rush them out? It was a picture of the rapture. The, the destruction did not begin. And that judgment did not come from uh, men on the earth. It came from God in heaven. And God rushed them out of the city before the destruction began, preserved his people. Here's another question for you. When the walls of Jericho were coming down and that city was going to be burnt and destroyed and the people killed, there was a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute, who was not a part of God's people, but she preserved the spies that came in to Jericho. She hid them and she helped them carry out God's purpose. And even though she was not a part of God's people, Gentiles, what happened? They told her when we come back to take this city, you and your family stay in your house, drape this scarlet cord out of your window so that we know who you are and where you are. That scarlet cord is a picture of the blood of Jesus and the redemptive protection we have in Christ. And when they came back and the walls fell, they knew exactly where she was with her family. And if you go read the story in the book of Joshua, guess what they did? Before they ran into the city and destroyed everything and killed everybody, instructions were given. Go get Rahab and her family and lead them safely out of the city back to our camp before you begin your destruction. And here's people representing the Gentiles, not even a part of God's people, who were safely led out of the city before destruction began. All the types and shadows that we have in the Old Testament of the rapture show God's people being preserved before destruction begins. Now, some would say, well, there's always been uh, Christians being uh, in the midst of tribulation and being persecuted. Yes, there has. And Jesus prophesied that that would happen. You'll be hated all over the world for my name's sake. They hated me first, and so they'll hate you. And wicked men will persecute you. Yes, that's true. But I want you to clearly see the difference today as Pentecostal people. There's a big difference between wicked men with an antichrist spirit and agenda persecuting believers. 
I'm thinking about the churches in China that have to be underground because they'll be killed or persecuted. I'm thinking about Boko Haram in Nigeria, beheading Christians and burning down churches with the people inside. I'm thinking of those kinds of things. I'm thinking of Muslims, jihadists that are killing Christians in Pakistan and other places. And what do we, how do we categorize that? That's the prophecy of Jesus coming to pass. Wicked men that are persecuting God's holy people. Jesus said it would happen. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That's one category, but that's not what I'm talking about today. That is not what's described in the book of Revelation. These are not wicked men persecuting God's people. This is a picture of God himself pouring out wrath from heaven down to the earth upon people who are wicked, who have rejected his son, who have rejected his message. It's the same thing he did in Noah's day. God sent the rain, God sent the flood, not wicked men. It's the same thing he did with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? The wicked people living in it? No, God sent fire from heaven. It's the same thing with Jericho. Who destroyed Jericho? Was it the people living inside, the wicked people? No, when they obeyed God's command and shouted, God's power wrecked the walls. God did it. Let me ask you a question. When you go back to the book of Exodus and God was bringing his people out of Egypt, they'd been persecuted by Pharaoh and his, and his people in Egypt. Yes, they had. That's persecution. But when the death angel came down from heaven as the final plague, was that evil men persecuting the wicked there? Or did God send judgment in the form of a death angel? God sent judgment. It's different. When God opened up the Red Sea and let the Israelites cross, was that God preserving his people? Yes. But when Pharaoh and his army came into the, the, the seabed and God closed the waters down over them, was that wicked men destroying wicked men? Or was that God bringing judgment to wicked men? It was God. And that's the difference. And that's what we're talking about. There's a massive difference between wicked men persecuting Christians and God sending judgment from heaven. It's a totally different thing. And that's why if you believe that there will be a literal tribulation where God pours out judgments as defined and described in the book of Revelation, why would you ever believe that we would be here to receive those kinds of judgments if we're the people who are exempted from God's wrath. The Bible tells us that we have not been appointed unto wrath. We've not been appointed unto God's wrath. Here's the question. Why have we not been appointed unto God's wrath? Because the wrath of God for the believer was satisfied on the body of Jesus Christ when he was crucified he took our sins. He took our punishment. He took our judgment. The wrath of God came onto the body of Jesus for you and for me. That means we don't have to suffer judgment because Jesus took our judgment. And maybe you're watching this today and somehow you tuned into my broadcast or maybe you're watching uh, on the replay or maybe you're listening to the podcast and you know that there are things in your life today that are sinful, that are displeasing to God. And if Jesus literally did come back, like we're talking about today, you're not ready to see him. Can I lead you in the prayer of salvation, the prayer of faith? Don't gamble with your future. Don't gamble knowing Christ is coming back. Know that you're ready for heaven. Know that you're ready to see Jesus. I want people to bow their head if you're able to do it. And if you're watching or listening and you're not ready for heaven or there's sin that you need to be forgiven from, I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. Say, Father, thank you for sending your son to die for me. I ask you today, forgive me of my sin. Make me new. 
Give me the power to live for you for the rest of my life until I die or until you come. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe you raised him from the dead. From this moment forward, I am a child of God. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer with me, you are a new person, but this is not the end of your experience. It's just the beginning. And I want to do something. Many of you may know this. Some of you may not know. I have created free resources for those of you that have gotten saved, that are a part of the family of God. These are short videos that you can watch that will actually teach you how to live successfully in the kingdom of God. And they're free. And all you have to do, and I don't know if we have the lower third, but you can go to miracleword.com forward slash saved. Miracleword.com forward slash saved. If you're listening to the podcast and you just did this, if you'll just swipe up into the description, you'll see the link in the description. Miracleword.com forward slash saved. And right there you'll find uh, information and it'll give you a link that you'll get to go and watch those videos. It's absolutely free. I encourage you to do that. I believe with all my heart that it's important as Jesus said it was, and as the apostles believed it was to be baptized in the Holy spirit. I want to pray for people today that if you've not yet been, I saw uh, Cassandra asking about, am I baptized with the Holy spirit? If I have, I spoken in tongues, if I haven't spoken in tongues, I want to pray for those watching today that if you've not yet been baptized in the Holy ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, that today God would fill you with the Holy ghost and that you'd be empowered to do what he's called you to do. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for those that are watching, that are hungry, that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I pray that today would be the day that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. Lord, as you did with so many of those young people last week at the Uproar Conference, do it for them today, wherever they're watching from or listening from. Fill them with the mighty power of the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Equip them, strengthen them, and empower them today in the mighty name of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, I want to encourage those of you that are watching, if you've not yet done so, to stand with our ministry in partnership. Again, we've got the Victory Tribe uh, homecoming weekend that's coming up for our partners. We're going to have that luncheon, but we want to encourage you. We're, we're touching the world in every possible way that we can through media, online, through crusades, preaching the gospel through television in 180 nations of the world, feeding the hungry. In fact, if you'd like to see all that we're doing, you can go to miracleword.com and then click on the partner page. It, it'll show you everything that we're, we're doing and what we're about. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that and partner with us. You can see on the screen that you can go to miracleword.com to partner, fill out the form and let us know that you're standing with us, believing God to change this generation. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you today to sow a seed, a one-time seed. You can use PayPal or Cash App, Venmo. You can use hashtag donate. You can even do a Zelle if you'd like to do a, a Zelle transfer. All of those ways to give are also found on the website and you can use them to, to sow a seed. But ask the Lord today, what can I do to stand with Ted and Carolyn and the Miracle Word team in partnership to push this gospel forward as time is running out and it is running out. That's why we're running as hard as we're running because we believe Jesus is coming and we're doing the work he asked us to do before it's too late. And we, we thank every one of you that are already standing with us. I want to encourage you. There's people watching the Lord's dealing with your heart to stand with us and partner with us. We thank you for those of you that are obeying his voice. Things are going to change in this generation. You know, I, I look back last week, I put it on Twitter. I thought to myself, you know, people going around saying this generation's not hungry for God. We had a five hour service, five hours. Nobody was sitting around just scrolling their phone, disinterested. Kids were weeping, students dancing until they were sweaty messes lining up to be baptized. I mean, we only had a certain number scheduled to be baptized, ended up spontaneously. We baptized 121 students shouting, screaming, jumping, praying, repenting of sin, getting baptized in the Holy ghost. 
and then saying, don't stop the service. Didn't want the service to end after five hours. It was after midnight. Don't make us go home. Didn't want to, didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave. Why? This is a generation that's hungry for the power of God. When you stand with this ministry, you're standing with a team of people that are not satisfied with the status quo, with dead, dry religion. We're showing the power of God to a hungry generation and people are coming in by, I'm just telling you, it's mind blowing to see the hunger everywhere you go. Mind blowing. And so I want to say thank you. In this month of August, we want to send you this book by Bishop David Oyedepo as our gift to you. Those of you that are sending and sewing $85 or more, Operating in the Supernatural by Bishop David Oyedepo. If you'd like to receive this as your gift, it's miracleword.com forward slash offer. Fill out the form. Uh, those of you that are sewing $1,000 or more, we're also going to include this genuine leather life application study Bible with thousands and thousands and thousands of notes that will help you in your Bible study. Yes, Gina, you can absolutely divide partnership into weeks. You know, if you'd like to do like $21 a week instead of, you know, whatever it is, $22 a week, of course you can do that. When you go to the site, there's a way that you can click on the frequency and instead of monthly, you can choose weekly and then you could put in the, the amount, $21, $22, whatever it is. Um, I think it's $22 or something every week. Of course you can do that. Of course you can do that. So it's all available on the website and you'll see that instruction as you go and click on it. For those that are sewing $5,000 or more, um, we're sending something we've put together for you. This is a beautiful package we put together as a way to say thank you. It's the Elite Study Collection, a custom box that we, we've created, uh, a keepsake box with five of the best study materials you can have as a believer. Uh, this will bless you immensely. It's our way to say thank you for standing with us at a significant amount of $5,000 or more. Can't wait to get to Logan Myrna. Looking forward to seeing everybody. Uh, we love pastors Josh and Consuela very much. Can't wait to get back. Hey, Brad, love you guys. Carolyn's gonna be live at two o'clock. Again, you're gonna receive an email uh, that's going out. The, the email goes out to everybody on the list, but then uh, tomorrow, a special email for our partners so that you have the link to register for the upcoming weekend. Um, and then also I'll send a text out to our partners, but you've got to be a current partner of $85 or more. And if you are, we will get you that email tomorrow. We'll get you that text message so that you can RSVP. We have a limited amount of space at the hotel for the luncheon. And also uh, the link for the first 20 of you uh, who want to use the room blocks at the Renaissance, you'll get a discounted group rate on your hotel room. And once again, starting tomorrow, the first 50 people that register, we're putting your name in a raffle. We're going to draw somebody and we're going to pay for your hotel room ourselves as a way to say thank you. We can't wait to see you guys. We love you so much. Carolyn will be back at two o'clock. That's two hours from now. Matt said, will there be dancing? Matt Costa. Only if you're doing the dancing, Matt. That's going to be... Uh, a very exciting thing. We, uh, we love you guys. I'll be back again with you in the morning. Carolyn's back two o'clock today and Friday for Friday, Friday favorites. And uh, it's going to be a great week. We start in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on Sunday. And uh, all of our details for upcoming meetings are live on the site. Confirmed. Come be a part of a live meeting. You'll, um, we, not only do we love to see you, you'll be blessed immensely to come be a part of Revival. Love you so much. Have a powerful day. I'll talk to you guys very soon. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.